and welcome to my podcast. I am Donna O. I wanted to create a podcast that will allow us to see the world from new and different perspectives by having sometimes difficult and challenging conversations such as race or talking about lifestyle, health, relationships, and spirituality. If you're ready to begin a journey that will push you to open your heart and push you to change your mind, then please join me on Moving Through and With Heart. The stories that we share with each other are valuable. They contain our history, our journey, and the lessons that we have learned along the way. We quite often forget our stories. Life is not like a movie. So the stories of where we came from and how we got to where we are get compressed and often lost. I have been thinking a lot about how I became the person that I am today and the wisdom that my family imparted onto me. In this podcast, I am joined by my father, Elbo Tosin, as we begin to talk about race, what it was like for him as a black man growing up in America in the 50s, the lessons he learned, and a few words of wisdom. While you listen, begin to ask yourself, who are the people that helped chart your life and helped you see the world the way that you see it? So my question for you, mom and I have had a lot of conversations and she... Um, has shared, but I haven't asked you, and you were really, you were on the, I know you and Uncle Walter were part of the Black Caucus back in the 60s and 70s, a president, vice president, and you did a lot for the movement back then. Black Caucus in Co-op City. Right, Black Caucus in Co-op City, correct, in Bronx, New York. And so I'm curious as to what you see the difference between then in the 60s and 70s and now? Now it's taking on a better dimension because more people are involved. Then it was basically Afro-Americans. Very few Caucasians, very few Latinos, very few Japanese, very few Europeans, very few Asians. Now it seems to be more diversified, which is great. Because of more diversification, you probably get more done. But in the 60s and the 70s, we laid groundwork that helped get us to where we are now. If that work hadn't been done, then you'd probably be facing now what we faced then. So can you give me an example, like what kind of groundwork do you feel that was laid then, and what do you think that you faced then versus now? Well, there are more Afro-Americans and Latinos in the corporate world now than then. Okay. It was a novelty to have Afro-American, male and female, in the corporate world at higher levels other than entry levels. Now you have more in the higher levels um, because things have gotten better. But then a lot of the entry level that occurred then are no longer now because of technology. So what is some of the groundwork that you feel that you helped lay back then that's helping us now? Mm, That's a tough one because all of us as you mentioned, Uncle Walter, 
We all participated in breaking ground then in the chemical industry, the banking sector or financial sectors, education, medical, um, not so much politics. Then in the politics, you had Jesse Jackson, you had Reverend Al coming along because he was younger. Um, but remember in the 60s, you had the Black Panther movement or what they call Black Power, Black Panthers. They blazed a lot of ground. You had John Lewis. Um, of course, you had Martin Luther King. You had the Kennedys. And believe it or not, you had somewhat of the Rockefellers because they had a foundation that they could contribute money philanthropic-wise to different causes during that time in the 60s and the 70s. America has always run on green, meaning green paper, money. In order to get there for Afro-American was almost unheard of. However, the trails we blazed then in the corporate structure took us to levels of assistant vice presidents, um, very few presidents, very few board members. And we maintain knowing our place because we were coming from an environment of our parents always maintaining what their place was. What we did is we did something that kind of shook our parents because they were saying, you better not do that because um, you just can't. And we would say, oh, we can't? Okay. And we would go ahead and do what we thought that could be done. In having these conversations, I am now realizing that depending on where you live in the country, your experience as a black person is and was very different. I always knew this, but I understand this more so now than ever. Now the understanding of this has taken on more depth and more meaning. After talking to other members of my family where their parents grew up in the South, they would not have dreamed of not listening to their parents as black people. They could not risk their lives doing so. They could not risk their safety. My father grew up in New York, which offered him many privileges that he would not have had as a black man if he would have lived in the South. The migration of black families to the North offered them a lot more opportunities. Um, like, do you have examples of what you mean by that? Yeah, my father was a bus driver. Um, Uncle Walter's father was a longshoreman. And a lot of our friends' parents, mothers and fathers who worked, had good paying jobs then, but they weren't in the um, corporate world. They weren't a member of that. And our parents didn't want what they did for us. So we kind of blazed our own trail. And we branched out and said, okay, what do we want to do? So we became more educated. Most of us were the first to go to college and graduate. 
um, where our parents had not done that. A lot of our parents never even got out of high school. Um, so what we wanted to do was to not do the kind of work they did. We wanted to do something different. Unknowing to us what the task we were taking on was going to be much more difficult because in the areas I mentioned, finance, education, etc., cetera, um, we were so few and we had not broken a lot of ground there. When we started breaking ground, there were a lot of obstacles. One of the obstacles, which was interesting, was as an Afro-American, if you were light-skinned versus dark-skinned, light-skinned Afro-Americans, male and female, were more readily acceptable in the corporate culture. Um, I don't want to use the word fear, but the mentality that a lot of whites had at that time was if you were dark-skinned or pretty much black in color, to them you represented a fear of um, hostility, anger, um, things that they were not used to or didn't want to be a part of. But if you were fair-skinned, clearly here, somewhat had good looks, you were more readily accepted because you were almost aligned with them. As a matter of fact, a lot of them couldn't even tell what you were. A lot of times they would ask you, what are you? What are your parents' background or something like that? So you had that aspect. My father touches upon colorism, lighter-skinned black people versus dark-skinned black people being accepted. This concept may or may not be new to you. I ask you to ask yourself, are you more comfortable when you see or are with a black person if the tone of their skin is lighter or darker? Then ask yourself why. Now, in my family, which was different, my father had acquaintances and friends that were very interesting. Um, one would have to wonder, how did he do that? Because most Afro-Americans didn't have those kinds of friends outside of being an Afro-American. <coughs> Excuse me. So I watched that. Meaning he had white friends, is that what you mean? Yeah, Italian friends, Irish friends. The neighborhood I came from was middle class. And they were going to dismantle most of the pre-war buildings to upgrade to better living quarters. Was this neighborhood like an all-black neighborhood? Was it a mixed neighborhood? It was a mixed neighborhood. It was a mixed neighborhood. Yep. And that's, so that, we're talking about 50s at that point. We're talking about the 50s, uh -huh. the 60s, and then when you got toward the 70s, um, those neighborhoods were pretty much 
high 90s Afro-American and Latino. Um, so my father saw where we're going to have to move. And he started looking around where he wanted to go. He came home, told my mother some areas where he wanted to go. And she said, no. The areas that he wanted to go was in Queens. Now, those areas were scrutinized applications. And at that time, if you were Afro-American, and you went in with your application, they put an N for Negro or whatever designation they used. And your application was just put somewhere in a pile. That sort of happened to my father. And my father said, no, this is not going to happen. So he had a contact that he went to, talked to the contact, and the contact said, don't worry about it. If you want to move there with your family, you can. I'll see to it. The contact was white, a very, very extremely affluent attorney. And so my father came home, told my mother, she still said no. But the point I'm making is, is that my father knew somebody and he was accepted by them to say, if you want to live in one of those places, you can. Did my grandfather pass or get assistance because he was passing? We will never know, but I do remember hearing stories about he, how he was special, but no one would ever share why. His contact was obviously white. How did my grandfather make that happen? I have asked my father this question on multiple occasions, and he has never been able to fully explain to me why. He just said that my grandfather was capable and had charisma and knew how to talk to people and knew what to say. But knowing all the things that I know now, I really wonder if this is all there is to that story. But one will never know. Another thing happened also, too, that's very vivid. When my father retired, he retired because he got sick. And the company he worked for, for years, did not want to give him what he was entitled to. Now, he had a friend of his who worked in personnel at that time, an Afro-American, the first. And that gentleman and his family lived in the same building where we lived. Matter of fact, my father was responsible for him getting the job. And so when he went to personnel, his friend told him, I can't do anything, it's the job. But I tell you what you can do, go see. He told my father who to go see, which was the same person that was gonna intercede and get him into the 
develop housing developments in Queens. This person, whatever he did through the company my father worked for, not only got my father all his pension, got him all his medical, and even helped him find a better place to live when he and my mother, unfortunately, had split up. Sounds to me like there are ways, it's almost like, you know, for people that are not willing to speak up and speak out, there are other ways, you know, there are always gonna be those, it's like acknowledging there's always gonna be those people behind the scenes that we can't see that are always kind of helping and guiding without us even knowing that they're doing it. That's there right. Are things that are happening. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Do you think that maybe um, your dad was able to have the successes and the things he does he did because he was so fair and complex? It's not that he was fair. Matter of fact, I'm probably fairer than he is. However, he had personality. He had good way of talking. Um, it's the way he presented himself. He had character. He had the type of character that he instilled in me that would take you far or anywhere you want to go. What, if, what do you think are some of those attributes that he had that are so unique and different about him that you think he instilled in you? Same thing, character. But when you mean character, Charisma, you mean like being able to, to, to talk with people being able to see another side, being able to listen, being able to converse with people on different levels. Even if you had never conversed in that level, God gave you something that is inherent in all of us, even you. And he knew when to do and when not to do something that I had to learn, which was tough. Because I would say in a lot of instances, I may have gone further than what my surroundings wanted me to. And when that happens, it's threatening. And then that surrounding finds a way to make sure that you're out. My father talked a lot about character and what I consider today is how to build relationships with people, how to speak to different types of people from different places around the world, from different walks of life, and learning how to be with them and really thinking about the character of the person and how we move through the world. I find it so fascinating because I never really hear anyone speak of these things now and today. We spend a lot of time with blinders on, insisting that the world needs to meet us instead of how we can meet the world and learn how to be different in order to be together and to build more solid, lasting relationships. So what are some other ways you feel that you, <coughs> Uncle Walter may have paved the way? I know you said that you guys were on Wall Street at one point. No, well, Uncle Walter worked for a premier um, chemical company Okay. where he was a um, chemical a scientist. engineer. Scientist, right? 
No, he wasn't a scientist. He was a chemical engineer. Okay. Um, although I can imagine there are times when he got together with scientists, yes. But he was an engineer. Um, where we tried to do our best is instill in our offspring and our families bringing them up. I don't want to compare a difference and say what he did as to what he didn't do. That wouldn't be fair. But in my instance, you couldn't tell me no. And I always wanted to get to one point. I got there, so I'm bored now. I got to get to another point, another level. So I find it very interesting as an African-American man growing up during the 50s to have decided that you weren't going to accept no when the world kind of looked at you and said you were limited and incapable and not really able to go further because of the color of your skin. What do you think was different for you that you decided that you weren't going to accept that and you were going to find a way and make a way no matter what, regardless, when the world around you was not so accepting? Because I always felt that I was at least as smart as or smarter than the environment that I was in. What do and you I think told that. you that? What do you think helped you? I told what myself. It, yeah. Because of where I was able to go and do what I was able to do just propelled me to do more. So how do you think that's different now, I'm sure, for a lot of people that they feel like because they're African-American or they're black that they can't really go that high in certain or in many organizations because of the fact of the color of their skin? That's true. The problem is, is that Afro-Americans have to have the gall and the balls as individuals to try to trace a dream and make it come true. And in most cases, if they try hard enough, there's one thing that'll happen to them that man will not do, and that's God. Because I always believe that somewhere along the line, God was the driving force in the whole thing. Because otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And from leaving that institution, it was hard because I'm unemployed and your mother's working three jobs. She's tired all the time. My father shares what it was like losing his job. He lost his job when I was younger and it was a really difficult time for my family. He shares his feelings about it, what he learned, and he reflects back on the positive of that experience. I think this part of our conversation was really important to share. It's a story of perseverance and resilience. He also shares how he helped others. But during that two-year period, I was able to get actually three years of jobs in teaching in college um, and in different industries that I would have never thought about going to. They would have, it would, 
It wouldn't even enter my mind. I wouldn't even looked. And during that period of time, I used my time wisely, except for Sunday and sometimes Saturday. I was in the library all the time. And I learned about all the things that go into a lot of the Moody's financial books and different corporate books. And a matter of fact, it had gotten so I could tell you on the probably the top 50 companies in the country who was on the board of directors. I memorized their names, I had looked them up, and who was in what they call interlocking directorships. And the reason is, is because I wrote all of them letters. I didn't, wasn't going through the bottom, I wasn't going through no personnel. I said not with my credentials and what I know, I gotta present myself to the top. Did any of them also, ever respond? No. Out of 200 letters I wrote, I probably got on a response to maybe seven. However, the good thing came out of that. It taught me a lot. It expanded my, my knowledge, which I would have never done. So being, it was tough times, and being unemployed did have its advantages. You know, I watched sometimes Joe Osteen on Sundays with your mother, and one of the things he says a lot is, God will not take you somewhere where he's just going to leave you. There's a plan. I think it's interesting that, you know, it sounds like you made use of your time that you weren't working, and you use that you saw it at you were able to look back and look at the positives of how that time expanded who you are brought you growth and how you became smarter during that time and you really still worked towards a goal that was bigger than you bigger than what you thought your dreams would be even maybe instead of just looking for a job one thing we did too back then, I don't know if it's done now, um, one of my cousins organized a group of young men. We all had corporate jobs, and our job was to go around to South Bronx and Manhattan and Brooklyn and go into some of the um, junior high school, well, middle schools, they call it now, and talk to the kids. We'd pick two classrooms. The te we'd, teachers would, the principal would know we're coming. And we'd go in and we'd split up. And we'd take two or three classes and we'd talk to them about the importance of getting an education, staying in school. And one of the things we got hit with was sometimes one or two kids would ask us, could we visit you where you work? And we learned to say yes. And we make arrangements for them to come and visit us in the building we work in. And they'd come at lunchtime, and we'd take them to the cafeteria, get them something to eat. We'd walk them around to some of the departments on the floor. And then their teachers would return them. And we'd always leave them a contact for us if they wanted to um, talk with us. So I'm curious about something. So one of the things that mom and I talked about was 
parenting. How do you feel that you, or what did you bring with you from being part of the Black Caucus and the different experiences you've had as a black man into being a parent? Nothing. Nothing. The Black Caucus in Co-op City was set up because at that time, the population was 90% Jewish, probably 5% Afro-American and the rest of a Irish, Japanese, whatever. And mom said we didn't go to any of the meetings. Did you agree no. with that too? Yeah. Have not sent, okay. I left the Black Caucus because of the way it was going. What happened at that time, you had the Black Panthers organizations and all of that. Some of the gentlemen in the Black Caucus, and it was quite a, it was a big organization in Corp City, were so-called militant. They felt they could take over. You can't take over. You can be a part of this. You can make things better, but you can't take over. So what were you trying to achieve in being part of it? What Nothing, part just of it? being part of it, just being there and just listening and learning. And I, I really but you were nothing. like the president and the vice president. I was so. the vice president. Uncle Walter was the president. So, but you were running it. So you had to have wanted to achieve something. Like what made you decide to run this organization? Just to make sure that people in the community treated Afro-Americans as fairly as they did. And what would you advice yeah. would you give families now that are a part of the movement that we have going on now? Hmm. There's so much going on now. I think there's a lot of a lot of things going on now where it's fractionated. There's you have a number of groups. And what's changed now is back then you had a number of groups, but you had leadership. You had Dr. King. Sometimes you had Jesse Jackson, John Lewis, and others. But Dr. King at that time was the, the, out, the, the big one. You don't have a Dr. King anymore, um, although his dreams and his advice and thinking still carries forward. It's beautiful. But what you have now is things have been so pent up for years. And the job market, in terms of what's been offered, is not enough to sustain. So what has to happen now is everyone, whether you're black or white or poor, has to look at, okay, what do I want to do and where do I fit in society? And it starts with two things, education and then jobs. Or if you're going to be an entrepreneur, do it on your own, which is a nice thing to do because that's something I tried. I was my own entrepreneur for about 18 months when I owned the store. That was a good experience and something to do. But you have to think about what do you want to do and how you want to do it. And education has always, always been at the low part of the totem pole. Well, what would you tell black men now, if you had the chance 
to speak to them? Like, what would you say? To if they them? have a dream, follow it, no matter what the recourse is. Because in following it, God will help them get there. They just have to have faith and, and walk the line. Because there's going to be times when they're going to get to a wall and say, oh, shoot, here we go again. And it's only a temporary wall. That wall will fall or they'll go around it. Do you feel that black men now are struggling more? And if so, why do you think that is? I mean, well, see, there, there's less, such a breakdown of the African-American family and men. What do you think has changed so much or has everything things changed? There's not the same entry level jobs now as it was then. Now you got to have skill, more skills, even at an entry level, whatever that is. And the key to doing that is education. Going to school, but not just going to school. You got to study outside of school. Education has to be seven days a week, 365 days a year, especially for a black man, black woman too. No stopping. You go to school, you get structured, you get taught, but you're only going to get but so much. If you're going to excel and exceed better, maybe faster, maybe, then you have to look at, okay, I've got to study some more outside. You got to read, 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 read. That's the key. Because once you do that, you've expanded that brain as God-given. No one can take that away from you. And then you excel. See, then you had, you had menial jobs, factory jobs, entry-level jobs in computers, dressmaking. You had a bunch of what I call industries, that you could get a job and you could do well. You could even be a, a busboy or, or outgoing. Well, busboys now are almost non-existent. Entry level for computers now is coding, not the way it was back in the 50s and 60s. Um, you have now more machines. You got computers doing work that people used to do. It's automated. So it's the same now as it was then. You go into those jobs and you excel and you move up or you move out and you do something else. Now you have to do the same thing. So but it sounds like you have to know more now in order to get them. You can't just go into oh, you them. Do. You have to decide and do. And I think that what happens is, you know, the skills aren't being taught, let's say, in high school, for instance. No. So that, you know, a lot of communities and maybe especially African-American communities aren't given the skill that they need to get out of high school to go on to the next thing. And if you can't go, afford to go to college, you're kind of left with no skill to really get to any other job, which is a breakdown of a community. And I don't, maybe it affects the more socioeconomic class. I don't, I don't know if, it, if the socioeconomics may have something to do with it, but surely, I mean, I've watched even my own daughter like graduating 
from high school not really have anything from graduating from high school. Even when I went to high school, they were teaching all kinds of, you had, what was it, shop, where they taught mechanics and beauty and all this, you know, if you're going to be a cosmetologist, like they had these skills in the high schools that you could go on if you didn't go to college. Now it seems like you're coming out of high school, even if you go to college, you're not really necessarily coming out of college with a skill to put you in the next job. And it makes sense with what you're saying as far as they don't have the entry level jobs. I mean, like, what do you do? Like, you know, the kids these days are graduating from college with debt and going and get retail jobs. It's like, what do they do? Like they, they don't really have a skill or a plan or a path to get anything to go anywhere right off the bat. You're gonna to have to be more individualistic than you were before. You gotta be an individual first before you can join groups. Joining groups and protesting and all is great. It's showing where we are and where we can become better. But to do for ourselves in terms of being economically sound, mentally, physically, you have to be the individual first. Now, you can participate with others and you help one another, but you have to do it all on an individual basis where you have to be able to sit down and read, go to the library, use the computer um, research and all. That has to come from within. You have to want to do that. It's not an easy thing to do. You got to be disciplined, but you got to do it. You do that, you'd be surprised of how it'll open up the mind to more things because that's where it's at. It's up all up here. It's opening up the mind. You have to do training. You have to be trained. That can be as an individual or it can be in partnership. The sharing and all is great to do, great to do. But you can't do that unless you as an individual know, hey, I got to do some of these things on my own. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation that I had with my dad. I really loved talking and learning and hearing about his experiences. The unfortunate thing is that when I had this conversation and I recorded it, it actually cut off right where it ended. And he had such incredible things to say about love and moving through the world with an open heart. The good news is that it forced me to go back and have yet another conversation with him. So please make sure you subscribe to my podcast so you'll know when I upload that. My father has always been a large supporter of education and individuality. He instilled that in both me and my sister. And I hope that if you are Black and listening, you heard and digested the part of education and how invaluable and important it is. My dad wrote a poem and gave it to me when I was a kid. He wrote it on the inside of a dictionary that he gave me because words and knowledge were so important to him. I have never forgotten that poem. And this is how it went. So they asked me how I did it. And I gave them the scripture text. You keep your light shining 
a little ahead of the rest. So they copied all they could copy, but they couldn't copy my mind. So I left them striving and straining a year and a half behind. I thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I'm your host, Dane O. And thank you for listening to Move Through and With Heart.